Hey everybody, it looks like we had an audio issue on the original upload that has been fixed. We had some audio tracks that were out of sync. I think I bumped the track after editing and before exporting. So my bad apologies, that has been fixed. And so you are in fact listening to the repaired audio. I hope you enjoy it. This week's episode is brought to you by 6minutemile.com. Running in fitness news, hand curated and delivered directly to your inbox multiple times each week. These six easily digestible stories, reviews, and moments of inspiration are like the skim for endurance athletes. Sign up today and you'll get stories like the future of artificial intelligence and run coaching, which are the best gym exercises for runners, and comprehensive reviews of the latest and greatest gear from the top brands in the industry. Looking for your next race? 6-Minute Mile has a great event directory as well. Visit 6minutemile.com, pop in your email address, and sign up for your very own inbox full of endurance goodness. 6minutemile.com. The thing about getting into a sport, especially a sport like cycling, where there isn't a clear development path for everybody, I mean, there's so many different entry points to the sport, which is one of the beautiful things about cycling is anybody can come to it from virtually anywhere, any stage of life, any level of experience. The drawback to that is there isn't always that clear path for developing and, and taking the next step and knowing where to go, where to get resources, where to get guidance. And so the, the analogy is, yeah, you, you're hacking your way through the jungle with a dull machete in the dark. And yeah. as a mentor, you finally, you know, after, after you've been in that jungle for a long time, you, you discover there are other people in the jungle also hacking their way through. And then you share resources and, and tips and, and suddenly somebody hands you a compass or they help you sharpen your machete. And the, the, I think the purpose of a mentor in that analogy is not to show you your path or offer a path because part of the journey is forging your own path. Welcome to Faster Forward. I am your host, Troy Bousseau. This is a show where we sit down and talk with some amazing people from the endurance community, age groupers and Olympians, adventurers and explorers. We discuss their successes and failures about falling down, getting back up and never ever quitting. While it's not always about finishing, it is most definitely about starting, getting on a journey faster forward. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Really good. Happy to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you here. This is the second recording I've done in, in two days in a row in the morning. I actually like it. It's kind of a nice way to, to jumpstart your day with a great conversation and get into yeah. it. So welcome to the show. We have right. Amber Pierce here, former uh, professional bike racer, former uh, elite level swimmer. I want to talk to you a little bit about that because that's that was... Uh, um, it, it sort of harkened forward to your second life now, which is as a product developer for products in the endurance community. And so that was sort of like your first product pivot on yourself was uh, switching right. from swimming to, to cycling. But uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Troy. Yeah, indeed. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we just start with a quick kind of intro, a little backstory on you and just um, get to know who is Amber Pierce a little bit. Sure. Please, please tell me if you figure it out. <laughs> I, you know, I've been, I've been reading about you. The, the, you've got a couple of great quotes that I'll reference later, but one of them um, about the, uh, um, the, the hacking your your analogy about hacking your way through this forest of kind of like women's oh, yeah. sport or women's cycling in general, and and like every all of you sort of have this. Well, well, 
you won't remember what, I'll, let me read it. So the analogy okay. I like to use is that most women come into the sport and they feel like they're hacking their way through the jungle with a machete. The truth is there are a bunch of other women that have hacked their way through the same jungle and they've forged these much better paths. Sometimes all you need is a little bit of guidance to learn from the mistakes others have made. That's such yeah. a good, good quote. And I think a good place to start about, you know, kind of forging your path versus standing on the shoulders of giants and kind of getting to where you've gotten in your career. Yeah, I um that quote quote came up in the context of of mentoring other athletes. Mm. And I I like that quote because I'm well, it was my quote and it's the way I think about it. So. It was a brilliant quote. I love it. <laughs> so brilliant. Um no, but I the thing about getting into a sport, especially a sport like cycling, where there isn't a clear development path for everybody. I mean, there's so many different entry points to the sport, which is one of the beautiful things about cycling is anybody can come to it from virtually anywhere, any stage of life, any level of experience. The drawback to that is there isn't always that clear path for developing and, and taking the next step and knowing where to go, where to get resources, where to get mm -hmm. guidance. And so the, the analogy is, yeah, you, you're hacking your way through the jungle with a dull machete in the dark. And yeah. as a mentor, you finally, you know, after, after you've been in that jungle for a long time, you, you discover there are other people in the jungle also hacking their way through. And then you share resources and, and tips and, and suddenly somebody hands you a compass or, or they help you sharpen your machete. And the, the, I think the purpose of a mentor in that analogy is not to show you your path or offer a path because part of the journey is forging your own path. Mm. But the, the purpose of a mentor is to say, hey, do you want to borrow my compass? Hey, can mm. I help you sharpen that machete? Hey, can I give you some, some resources and direction as you build your own path? Because yeah. that's part of what's so fulfilling about the sport. Um, that said, it can be extremely frustrating and discouraging if you don't have somebody alongside you to offer those resources at the times when you need them. So um, that was one of the things that I always wanted to try to do for others in the sport because others had had really done that for me and made a huge difference in, in my experience in my journey. Cycling is so different. It it really is much more of a pure team sport with domestiques and you have your, you know, your you could sort of analogize it a lot to football where you, you know, you can kind of think of your domestiques maybe as like the offensive line, you know, they're in support yeah. of the rest of the the team. And so you have this normal uh, sort of stasis in endurance sport where you have a lot of, you know, extremely high functioning, a lot of type A people who are basically in it for themselves. And then cycling, yeah. you bring this whole other team dynamic where it is maybe not just as prestigious, but certainly as important to be a domestique and to be a supporter of, you know, again, like the quarterback or, or you know, the, the star of the team. Um, is that, do you find that that's like a, a helpful path inside of, so you came from swimming, you know, state champion, yeah. I think sort of national level swimmer. Was it where there are no, it's, you know, there's nobody coming forth on the, you know, in a race and everybody's applauding <laughs> that person for helping the person who came in first, you know? Right. right. So is there a difference yeah. in that? Like, does it make it easier or harder in cycling in that regard? Ooh, that's a really loaded question. Um, and there's not a straightforward answer to that, right? There are some things about it that make it a lot easier and there are yeah. some things that make it 
far more difficult. And yeah, in swimming, when you get the result, you're the one on the podium. Yeah. And that's the way it is in most sports. And even in a lot of team sports, right? If you're on a basketball team, the whole team wins, the whole team gets the trophy. And I think that's one of the really unique things about cycling is that it is an incredible team sport where let's say on the women's side of the sport, we might have six or eight riders in a race of those six or eight riders, all of them, except one are going to sacrifice their own opportunity for the win in yeah. order to give one of their teammates the best chance for the win. And that is, as you said, um, a really different approach because you, all of those other people on the team are equally capable in their own rights of probably winning races. Right. But what happens in cycling is you approach a certain particular race and you say, okay, given the terrain, the competition, uh, the constraints that we're facing in this particular race on this particular day, who on our team has the best opportunity of winning? Mm. And then we put everything behind that person. So it's not always necessarily going to be the same person Yeah. because we always have to play to each other's strengths. So football is a great analogy. Um, I also like to say that cycling is a combination of NASCAR, chess, and boxing, okay. because <laughs> just like NASCAR, everybody shows up to the line with a certain amount of fuel in their tank, right? You okay. can't just, you've got so many matches to burn, so to speak. Right. And I'm going to mix metaphors all day here. So it's just good. fair warning to everybody. Um, but you also get to use the draft. And so you get to really judiciously use your energy, your fuel but also other people in the race, right. To save energy and to, mm. you know, entice other people to burn fuel where they might not want to. So there's all of that strategy going on similar to NASCAR. Yeah. Then you have chess because each person on the team has their particular strength. Like you might have somebody who's a really good climber, somebody who's a really good sprinter, somebody who's really good on flats, somebody who's really tactical. Um, and you're using those chess pieces strategically in the race in order to set up that one person and give them the best opportunity to win the race that day. And then it's like boxing because you, you'll have 200 women on yeah. bikes traveling at, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. Everybody is trying to be in the optimal position in the race, right? You can't win the race from the back of the race. So everybody's yeah. jockeying for position and these roads aren't necessarily, um, I, I raced a lot in Europe. And so the roads are not wide and spacious the way they are mm -hmm. often in the U S so everybody's, you know, 200 women on narrow roads on bikes. Yeah. Um, there's sometimes contact. Yeah. I'm just going you know, to yeah. say there's sometimes contact. So with all of that going on, you're, you're putting all your eggs in one basket for that one rider to win the race. And if you are successful, if, if your teammate wins the race, it's just that teammate that stands on the podium. Right. It's not the whole team, yeah. but everybody knows that that person wouldn't be on the podium without the effort of the rest of the team. Yeah. I, I, it's funny, I hadn't really thought about it, but there's the whole other side of boxing metaphor with the puncher versus counter puncher and the, <laughs> the, yeah. the tactical side of that, you know, Tyson, Mike Tyson was a puncher. He would go mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a counter puncher where you have like an MMA, a Conor McGregor, his strength and beauty walking, watching him is 100% counter puncher. You know, yeah, he is not an aggressive fighter per se. He will sit there and literally wait and then drop that left hand from nowhere, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. I, it, it, you know, when I came, the first bike race I ever watched was Lance's maybe second or third tour victory. So I didn't, I came in mm -hmm. totally blind, you know, I, I was in the triathlon world, but even then I was pretty new to it. So I didn't really understand the whole 
team dynamic there. I didn't understand right. the the attacking and the counterattacking and why that mattered. And so there's there really is. Whereas like in running, it's kind of like full throttle. And I loved your analogy yeah. of NASCAR, where there the analogy breaks NASCAR versus running because they're I mean, maybe on a windy day, you can tuck in behind somebody, but otherwise it's just kind of like, you know, it's more of a drag race, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, I liked those analogies and I think it helps to put perspective on the differences of bike racing to the other endurance events and kind of how, how that all plays together. You're, yeah. You're, and if, oh, sorry, no, go no, ahead. no, go ahead. No, no, please. I was just going to say, if folks are listening and you're not familiar with bike racing, um, a, a quick quick tutorial on what, you know, attacking and counterattacking mean is to say that, um, just simple terms. If you have two people racing each other against each other on bikes, if let's just assume that there's no wind and you're on perfectly flat terrain, if rider A is in front and rider B is behind rider B is doing up to 30% less work than rider A because they have that benefit of the draft. And so let's say they're racing over hundred miles and rider B just sits behind rider A that whole time. Well, who do you think is going to win at the line? Yeah. Rider B is going to be so much fresher. Well, then you add a whole team around that. And then you have this whole, whole Peloton and you can imagine how much more draft there is in a group of 200 than just behind a single rider. And what ends up happening is you want to save your designated rider, the person that you want to win that day. You want to make them as fresh as possible for those key moments in the race, whether that's climbing a mountain or sprinting the finish. But the problem is that every other team wants to do the same, yeah. right? So if everybody's just saving that rider <laughs> for those key moments, then it ends up effectively becoming a drag race. So then what you do is not only are you trying to save the energy of your key rider, you're also trying to force the other teams to do work that they don't want to do. Mm. And that's where you go out on an attack. An attack is where you accelerate really strongly away from the group. You create a separation. And it creates this dynamic in the field where everybody's looking at each other because they know if they don't chase this person down, that person's going to go away and win the race. Yeah. But in order to chase that person down now, they have to do work that they didn't yeah, want yeah. to do. And so it's this constant push and pull of, you know, the person doing the attacking, they're doing work, they're burning matches, but they're doing it very tactically mm. to force other teams to engage in a way that they might not want to. And so there's this, there's this, beautiful and complex interplay that unfolds with every race that makes every race completely and utterly unique. And just for me, it never got old. I loved that part of the racing. How much of that, I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with Johan Bernil being in the car talking, you know, over wireless to the rider. How much, how much of that is like specific to Tour de France level stuff. Are you the riders making those decisions? Is the director sportif yelling at you out of the window of a car telling you these tactics? Is this predetermined? <laughs> How is it just totally dependent on the race? Um, well, my career spanned 12 years. So I went through three distinct periods, one where we were able to race with radios, okay. one where radios were, you know, disallowed and then back on to the radios mm. again. And, um, I will say it's not just the tour de France. So I raced a lot of world cups, a lot of international stage races that were similar in like the stage races are similar in style to the tour de France. Um, world cups would be one day races. And so the tactics for a multi-day race are obviously different than a one day race, but we would often have that team car behind us in the caravan and the the race directors in the car and they are watching the race unfold. And so to your, to your questions, number one, is there a predetermined plan? Always. We always go into the race with a plan. 
but to to bring to bring Mike Tyson back to the conversation. Go back to boxing. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. And so you have to you have to go into the race with a plan. And the plan is usually looking at, okay, what's the terrain? What are going to be the key points in this race? Is, is there going to be a climb that's going to select out a particular group? Um, how are we going to position tactically for that? And then, or are there going to be crosswinds where we need to position ourselves differently? So looking at the race and having a plan as a team of, okay, what, what's the perfect outcome for us? And how would we create the race in a way that would put us in a position to realize that perfect outcome? Mm. And ultimately, all you can do is try to put yourself in a position to win. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you have zero control over what your competitors are going to do. Luck always plays sure. a role. And so you go into the race with a plan, but you have to be prepared to just respond in the moment in a split second to what's ha happening because it may all go off the rails from the gun. Yeah. Um, and between the, the director and the riders, the director's in the car and they, we do, you know, when we did have radios, they would be communicating things to us, but often it was more not making decisions for us. It was giving us the information that we needed to make Got good it. decisions. So oftentimes that would be uh, safety information. Hey, hey, there's an ambulance coming up around this corner. You know, you're going to want to move to the right side or, hey, we've got a crosswind. It looks like we're going to be taking a left turn. Here's how that's going to be shifting. Get yourselves in position. Um, because the director in the car can't see the race in real time fast enough yeah. to make the tactical decisions that need to be made in those split seconds. So really the best teams, the best directors would be teams that were fully empowered to make the decisions for themselves in the race in those moments. And the director is really there to support them and empower them in that. And then that way the riders trust and believe in themselves to make those split second decisions. Cause most of the time you don't have time to think about it. And by the time you've like really thought through and rationalized what the right thing to do in the moment is the opportunity has gone. So ultimately it comes down to the riders in the race to make those decisions and act on them quickly. I'm smiling because I thought for a minute you were talking about product development and then I realized <laughs> you were talking about cycling. Yeah, I mean, the yep. analogies are, it's so funny, just the, the parallels. And I don't think it's a universal parallel. I think it's something in your personality, um, in, in the, the sort of the, the, I don't know if it's a domestic mindset, but you had mentioned in some of the articles that I read and you and I talking about is that like you really embraced and loved the domestic mindset. And yeah. I know your, your work with trainer road and building products in the, in, in, you know, for endurance athletes in the space and the parallels between everything that you've just described right? About like what makes a great director, not telling the, not telling the team what to do, but giving them the right information and sort of the direction, um, right. in that regard, how much, yeah. like watching, you know, let's say a football game, um, and typically team sports momentum is so critical. You know, you can have a team, you know, a handful of years ago, the Super Bowl. um, I think it was Atlanta. I don't know. I don't, I barely watch football anymore, but I think it was, I don't remember who the hell was down, but they were down by three or four touchdowns. And then they, um, I think it was the chiefs or somebody came back and, and beat them. And, and so many times in like football, baseball, even basketball, like momentum swings are massive. Do you have that same dynamic when like in cycling again, 
versus running where it's just sort of pedal to the metal. There's not a lot of conservation going on. Do you get those same swings in momentum? Does momentum mean anything out there in a, in cycling? Oh, big time. Mm. Um, and the psychological momentum, the psychological co component of the momentum is incredibly powerful. And it's yet another tactical tool that you can use on the road. You can see where the momentum might be making somebody overconfident and complacent, mm. and you can take that opportunity. Or you might recognize that, you know, the, the chips are down. You're a little bit on the back foot. But if you have like the mental fortitude in those moments to not allow yourself to succumb to a decrease in that momentum, a decrease in motivation, and to see it potentially as an opportunity is a huge skill and a huge tactical strength that you can wield at any given time. Um, and so there's a psychological component and then there's also like the physical component. I mean, yeah. momentum is your best friend on the bike. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. 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 Clearly, clearly. Cause that, you know, it's, it, yeah. Yeah. it, thinking about being there, that being that there are so many teams in a race, it's not just you versus another team and it's right. easier maybe to bird dog and lay back and then again, counter punch and, you know, play possum and all that when you have, I mean, again, everybody can't be playing possum. Everybody can't be attacking, or I guess they could, you know, I guess that's where we get back into the boxing uh, metaphor, you know, where people yeah. are just trying to blow <laughs> each other's legs off. But, um, but it's, yeah, it's interesting to think of the, the entire mental side of cycling and frankly, how exhausting that has got to be. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like when you're, when you're riding, you know, through a rock garden, how much more fatiguing that is probably more so even than like going up a hill. It's just that constant bombardment, that mental side of, of, of riding a bike and just being sort of tussled about the whole time. Big time. And that's actually something that, um, I learned early on. And I talk about a lot with athletes that I mentor is cognitive load. Mm. It's huge. And people really overlook it, I think, because there's so much focus on, you know, training stress or recovering from big efforts on a physical level, but it's easy to forget that your brain is the biggest consumer of glucose in your whole body. Mm. Like it mm. takes a lot of energy to think. And when you have to think hard and really focus, guess what? Your brain's using more energy. And yeah. it's so easy to discount that because you don't have the, you know, the, the physical sensation of fatigue that you have in your muscles. I mean, we definitely get mentally fatigued, but I think it's so easy to just overlook and discount that, but it's incredibly important. And I think as an athlete, and this goes for all walks of life, one of the most important skills that we can learn is to how to steward your own energy and stewarding that energy in terms of, you know, the stewarding your motivation, stewarding your physical energy, stewarding your mental energy. How can you tune in and be really aware of how and when you're using that? Are you using it judiciously? Are you taking a step back to recharge when you need to? Um, and a bike race is such a perfect microcosm of that, right? Because you're exerting yourself physically, but at the same time, you have to be fueling your efforts, not only to conserve physical energy so that you have the stamina to continue to execute tactics from the start to the finish of a long race, but you need to go into that finish of the race or those key points of the race with mental sharpness. Because again, this isn't just, it's not just a drag race. It's not just a time trial of who's the strongest. I mean, that's one of the things that I love most about bike racing is it's generally not the strongest person who wins. It's the smartest person who wins. And part of being a smart racer 
is realizing that you have to steward your energy in a way that's going to preserve your mental acuity and your mental focus and your tactical awareness as much as your physical stamina and endurance. And yeah, it's just, there's so mm. many layers here. It's so yeah. rich. There's just so much to mine. <laughs> Do you fuel your legs the same way you fuel your brain? Yes and no. I mean, straight up, you know, carbohydrate is yeah. a great fuel for both, right? So that that's a, a key thing. And I think it's easy to remember, easy to forget that if you're in a, in a high stress situation or an unfamiliar environment where you may be having to process a little bit more than normal, mm. you are using more carbohydrate in your brain which means that you're going to have to take in a little bit more so that you're adequately fueling those muscles and your mind. Um, and so, so that's one thing, but then, you know, mental energy and is also emotional too. And so stewarding your emotions and making sure that, um, you know, you're, you're balancing those things that drain you and those things that really recharge you. And yeah. you can still do that in the middle of a bike race too. Yeah. Like there are moments where, things are really active. There's maybe a lot of attacks and counterattacks, and you really have to be on point. And then there might be a moment where, um, for whatever reason, tactically things are a bit more relaxed and that's where you just, you have to be able to really shut off and take even, even if it's five or 10 seconds, 30 seconds in the race where you can just kind of fully relax and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry is one of the yeah. things I used to say to myself, like, okay, here's the moment, eat, drink, and be merry yeah. and just relax and smile and have a laugh with somebody next to you in the race. And that, that kind of interaction, that kind of just mental relaxation can be really helpful. And being able to switch that on and off yeah. on a dime becomes really important. Yeah, that's an interesting, I hadn't thought about the mental interval work that one would have to yeah, do to get exactly. really good at that. And it's easy to tell when your legs need fuel. It's easy to tell when you physically need that fuel. Did you have tests um, that you would, you know, sort of free your brain to know when maybe your legs felt great, but you were, you know, because the normal mantra is shut up legs, right? It's not yeah. eat, be, eat, drink, and be merry. So right. <laughs> it's easy to sort of, you know, uh, suppress the good signals coming sorry, not good, but useful signals coming from your brain to tell you, you know, mm -hmm. you need to eat, you need to fuel this. Um, like, did you have, did you think explicitly about those things and, and how to adjust that in your brain? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things is just to recognize that after any tactically intense moment in the race, I know I was using a lot of focus. So regardless of the current sensation I'm feeling in my body, I know that I'm going to need to number one refuel because that was a, a physical effort, but also a mental effort. So just being aware of the dynamics that are unfolding and saying like, okay, that was really intense, regardless of how I feel right now, I got to get something into my system because I know I'm going to need it. The other thing that was a little bit less obvious was when I would start to have really negative self-talk mm. because over the years, I got pretty good at being, being better about being my best, my own best ally mm -hmm. on the bike, because I mean, you're the only one that's talking to you the whole time. <laughs> and, um, I would notice that I would start to have more negative thoughts, more self-doubt. I would start to feel cranky and get really frustrated. And then as that mood shift happened, that was when I would be like, Oh, I probably need to eat something. That's and sure enough, getting a little bit more fuel in the system would often be enough to turn that around. Um, but that, I mean, to be fair, that took me a long time to tune into and to really understand not only to have the awareness of it, but to train myself 
to notice it sooner and sooner and sooner, right? Yeah. Like once you know that it's like, oh, this is a thing that happens for me. Okay. Well, then training that skill of like, okay, wow, I've actually been cranky for about 30 minutes. Mm. So I should probably eat now. And then noticing that sooner and sooner and sooner until it's like you're five minutes in and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, here we are. I know exactly what's going on. I know what I need to do. Yeah. It, was it, as you got later into your career, was that a bigger and bigger role that you played on a team and your marketability to other teams that uh, you were pretty much with the same team it looked like for a while, correct? Yeah. I, well, I, I was on several different teams, but usually, I mean, women's cycling is, is um, generally operates on a year to year basis. So I was really fortunate to have a lot of stability on, on many of the teams that I was on and it's, it's often a rare thing. Um, but yeah, it was especially, I remember that honeymoon phase of, of being the rookie where mm -hmm. you, you get to, you get to just soak it up all the wisdom up from everyone around you. And then I remembered there was this real shift where people started asking me questions. And I'm like, why are you asking yeah. me this? <laughs> but then I found that I actually had some answers yeah. that landed and resonated. And then it was like, oh shoot, maybe I'm not the rookie anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in, in later years, it was definitely um, taking more of a mentorship role. And I really loved that. And you have mentioned a couple of times I was a domestique. And, and for those listening who may not know what that term means, it's a, it's a French term that's specific to a given role on a cycling team. And like we mentioned, often most of the team will sacrifice their opportunity to win to help the one of the people on the team win and the helpers are the domestiques. And I was typically a domestique on a team. Um, that wasn't to say that I didn't get my, my mm -hmm. fair shots at winning. And I, and I, I did win races and it was really fun and an incredible feeling. Um, but most of the time I was in that helper role and you might think that that would be a tough spot to be in because you know, it's, it's so fun to win. I mean, winning yeah. is fun. Let's be honest. It's awesome. Um, but one thing I, I found this really cool little etymological fact, which is the word sacrifice means to make sacred. Mm. And when you have a whole team of incredible, literally world-class athletes who are willing to sacrifice together for a common mm. goal, it is truly this feeling of making that win sacred. And when you're on a good team that is, is, is really empowered and really um has good chemistry when somebody wins the race thanks to your sacrifice they acknowledge that and the whole team acknowledges it in a way that makes you feel so elevated that sometimes honestly there were races where i helped someone else win that felt better than some of the races that i've won myself and it is it's a really deep and incredible feeling to know that your teammates are willing to do that for you and they're willing to do that for each other and that you're willing to do that for them. And it creates an incredible bond and trust that just, um, you know, we say the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And, and that dynamic I think is ultimately what elevates that. And, and it does, it makes it sacred in a way. That is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that, no, it, it truly is. It, it, it truly is. And, and the, the, you know, I've, I've been on, I've been on good teams, both in sport and in business where, um, there was a lot of talent that wasn't rowing in the same direction and, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, short term, it can work long term. It rarely does. 
I've been on teams where I think maybe the talent level wasn't as high, but people were all sort of rowing in the same direction. And the difference is wildly different. You know, I mean, yeah. it is palpable when, um, it's when the team makes sacred the mission. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. is, it is wildly different. It really is. And there's, one of the things I've noticed over the years, and this is definitely in cycling as well as in product, is anytime you're in a team environment, the dynamic is dynamic. Dynamic is dynamic. <laughs> um, the team dynamic is is in constant flux, right? It's yeah. evolving on a daily basis with every new interaction, and so that dynamic can move in one of two directions. And one of those directions would be where teammates see each other's success as a threat. Yeah, and that's a terrible place to be and i've i've seen that dynamic play out and it's it's miserable it's awful the team might function you might be able to tick boxes but there's a huge difference between functioning and thriving and then the other side of that continuum is the the dynamic where every teammate sees the success of other individual teammates and the success of the team as the highest good yeah. right and no one is threatened by the success of others. No one is threatened by the success of the team. No one's goal is to outshine others, but you are constantly willing to work in service of the team objective and to elevate your teammates. And every team is always evolving in one of those two directions. And it's one of those, it's one of the most important things you can do as a member of the team is to continue to help constantly nudge the team in the direction of elevating each other. And that's something that anybody on the team can do. I mean, being a domestique, I'm not necessarily the, the quote unquote leader that everybody's sacrificing for that's going to be standing on the podium. But one of the things you learn is every single person matters in what they do and how they contribute to the team. And you learn that servant leadership that you can, you can lead by serving the team. You can lead by serving your teammates and showing that example. And that is a really concrete example of how powerful just the effort of one individual can be in a team dynamic. Do you think I'm going to speak in some very uh, broad generalities here? It it seems to me, in my experience over the years, is you kind of alluded to when you know you have these type A, you know, basically, you know, elite level athletes that all want to win the race. Obviously, I think. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, these. I'm speaking to tendencies here. These are not absolutes. Obviously, men tend to be much more open about their aggressiveness toward whether it's a teammate or somebody else. Right? It's I'm yeah. going to bury you. You know where you stand. <laughs> and we'll oftentimes use like the '80s movies all got it wrong. Men are way. You know, it's like we usually just do it through. You know, forgive the expression, but ball busting. You know, joking around <laughs> yeah. and telling the person you're going to bury them. It's usually not like this overt, Ivan Drago. You know, I must break you type of thing. <laughs> Where I, I don't think women have the same directness, and I don't know if it's a personality thing or if it's a sort of socially acceptable thing. Did you do yeah. you feel like at at that elite level? the when you had someone sort of coming for you you knew it were they coming at you from the front or was it more sort of the backstabbing type of conflict uh I w rarely backstabbing okay. i think um and i think that that really comes from and there I, there's a subtlety here right so i want to say two things one is 
at that level, competitors have so much respect for one another that it's even if I'm coming for you or someone's coming for me, we are coming for each other with just boatloads of respect. And I think that that's, that's an important distinction to make. Um, and then the other thing I think in terms of the gender disparity is, and I'll, what I'm saying is, is probably specific to my experience. I've seen it in others too. And this might be more specific to kind of the, the time period in which I was growing up. But when I grew up, one of the things that I learned very quickly through just implicit feedback, right? Social feedback is it's more important to be liked than it is to be good at what you do. Mm-hmm. And so it, and that's a, that's hard, right? Especially, yeah. you know, as a young athlete, that was something that I really struggled with for a long time was, Hey, you know, as a, as a swimmer, I was going out and I was competing against my competitors who also happened to be my really good friends yeah. and I really like them and they really like me. And so, but, but every weekend we're out there right. just coming for each other. And it, it, it was this, um, it was a really hard thing to reconcile for a long time. And that actually, but at the same time, I had this really deep competitive drive that I just couldn't deny. Yeah. Like that was a part of who I was. And I was never a, you know, a backstabber and I wouldn't necessarily trash talk with my, my competitors, but I was merciless when it came to the race. Right. Mm. I was, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be, you know, giving any gifts, right. Like this was, but I, I wanted the same thing from my competitors too. And it took me a really long time until well into my cycling career to wrap my head around this. But ultimately when you step into the competitive arena, it is the place where you find your, your greatest strengths and your, your best gifts, right? Because I can go out and train by myself every day and I'm really good at pushing myself very hard, but I will never be able to push myself as hard as I can when there's a competitor next to me. Right. It's just a fact. Yeah. And so she's actually my greatest ally in discovering my own potential because I can't do it without her. And so once I figured that out, I realized that we're actually allies in this, right? She is, she is helping me discover what I'm capable of. And amazingly, I'm doing the same thing for her. Yeah. So if I come up, if I show up to the start line and I give anything less than a hundred percent doing her any favors, yeah. that's, that's not what we're there to do. And so I think that for women, there's a, there's a different framing. I think there's definitely a lot more social emphasis for us on being liked. I think a lot of athletes really struggle with that because they don't want to beat their friends and hurt their feelings. Mm-hmm. But coming to that understanding to, to see that, you know, giving your best, being merciless in the race is possibly the best favor that you can do for your competitor is a really powerful thing to understand. And I honestly think that that is one of the special things that I found about racing at that high level is, is we all respected each other. We knew what we were capable of and we weren't afraid to get out there and push each other because that's what we were there to do. Yeah. I, I should have qualified my statement too, in that I have I've always been hyper aware of these things. I, one of the things that I always say is I can tell within like 10 seconds of meeting a guy, whether or not he's ever been punched in the face. Um, and that is an <laughs> absolutely true statement. The other side though, is that women who have played sports have a very different personality than women who have not played sports in mm-hmm. general. Again, I'm speaking in broad generalities and you just mentioned something about hurting the competitor's feelings that is probably the biggest difference between women who have and have not 
grown up playing sports or competed at a high level, at, not even at a high level, competed it for a significant period of their time, uh, of time in their lives, because that hurting of the feelings, um, which I think generationally is something that like millennials have a really hard time with, um, mm -hmm. professionally, like in the business world and sports in general, is that if you correct somebody who hasn't like there, there's no hiding on us on a field or a track or a, you know, a, a race, there's no hiding it. So there's no point in your coach telling you you did a great job when you got pinned or you got a touchdown scored on you or you got out sprinted or what, there's no point, you know, right. it's like, you're not doing me any favors. And so people develop this callous that it's like, it's okay. It's okay to tell me I screwed up. It's okay to tell me yes. I, I quit. It's okay to, you know, point these things out because that's either going to move me out or it's going to move me up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, exactly. I think it, it was funny once again, though, in, in everything that you just said, I, the parallels between the business world and competitors and how important competitors are and not overly fixating on them, but allowing mm -hmm. them to drive you towards success. Um, blue ocean in some cases, you know, where you want to sort of avoid what the competitor is doing and offer the market something new, um, or just, Hey, head to head, I think I can do what you're doing better than you're doing it. And again, the analogy to a race is very similar, you know? Yeah. And I think going back to that point of, of accepting criticism and seeing it in a different light, I think a really key part of that is uh, the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. So this was um, based on some of the work of Dr. Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist, and she did some work with um, young children uh, and was looking at the differences in their behavior between the kids that were labeled at a young age as being gifted and those who weren't. And one of the things that she found was if a kid was labeled as gifted at a young age, they got this idea in their head that they were born with a certain intellect mm. and that intellect was fixed. So you're really smart, but this is, this is an innate and fixed trait. Interesting. Whereas the kids who weren't told that would screw up on an exam and say, oh, I must not have studied hard enough. I'll study hard enough next time. Whereas the kid with the fixed mindset would screw up on an exam and say, oh, maybe I'm not as smart as everybody thinks I am. Mm. So the challenge that gets presented for a fixed mindset is a, is a threat. It's a threat to your identity as being a smart and capable person. Whereas a challenge presented to somebody with a growth mindset is an opportunity to learn and get better. Wow. And so I think that when, when you're talking about people in sport, I think First of all, it's definitely a self-selecting population yeah, of people sure. who get involved in sport. But I think one of the great tragedies is a lot of people get involved in sport at a very young age, let's say through a PE program or something, where coaches don't necessarily have the psychological training to recognize how they can best support these kids who are at very vulnerable, tender ages um, through the inevitable challenges and failures that they're going to face. And unless you learn at an early stage of your experience with sport, how to adopt a growth mindset, everything about sport, if you have a fixed mindset, is going to be miserable and threatening mm. versus being um, a really incredible potential pathway to self-discovery and growth. 
And when you're talking about competition, again, when, when we, we talk about competitors being allies, it's because they're on, I mean, even the, uh, I'm going to go back to etymology, you guys, this, just nerding out on this, but compete, right? The etymology of the word compete is to seek with. So you're both on a learning journey and you're both there to learn together and you can learn more in the presence of each other than you can learn alone. Whereas if you come to that same competitive arena with a fixed mindset, it's nothing but threat because you're so scared of losing. You're, you're not competing to win. You're not competing to grow. You're not competing to learn. You're competing out of the fear of losing because what would that say about you versus saying, Hey, win or lose, I'm going to walk away having learned something about myself and about what it takes to come back to this competitive arena in the future as a stronger, better athlete. Wow. That is so interesting. Um, my brother, who's two years older than me in junior high, got into the gifted program and uh, brilliant, like photographic memory, super smart, just like one of the smartest people I know. So two years later, I go in and I take the gifted test and I don't make it. And everything that you just described, I think has very well defined he and I's lives and the differences between our mindsets in terms of when like he takes failure as a failure where I have always taken failure as an opportunity in athletics yeah. or academia or business or anything like for him, life is very rigid for me. It's extremely fungible. Like I, I have always said, like, I, I don't even, I failure. The only way to fail is to quit in my, in my mind. You know, like mm-hmm. with athletes, with celeb sites, with the, any of the business projects that I've ever been involved in, every day you're failing. I mean, every single yeah. day you had an assumption, you know, half of your assumptions are always going to prove to be wrong. And, you know, I mean, if you, if you go into it with that mindset that being wrong means you failed, you know, how are you ever going to build something? You're never going to be able to right. build, you know? Yeah. Exactly. And you see this happen. You see this happen with, I mean, take anything. Sport is a great example, right? You have an athlete come in and tell a young kid like, oh, you're so talented at this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, unless you're accompanying that with really reinforcing a growth mindset, you might be setting them up to believe that, yeah. oh, I have this fixed amount of talent. And if I lose this race or I, I don't achieve this time standard, then it means I'm not as talented as everybody thought. And it yeah. becomes a threat. But you could apply this to school. You can apply this to music. You can apply this to art. You can apply it to everything. And I think all of those, another favorite quote, I think it was a Bruce Lee quote. Bruce Bruce Lee called it many fingers pointing at the same moon. Every one of these paths is taking you in that direction of growth and self-discovery and Mm -hmm. learning. And, you know, so it doesn't matter whether it's sport or product management or software development, you know, there's, there's always your, your, no matter what you're doing in life, you're always on a learning curve and being kind with yourself to recognize that and to say that, Hey, I'm learning, you know, I'm not always going to get it right. Nobody does. Nobody shows up with all the answers. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting and difficult to finally wrap my head around in cycling was to even recognize that nobody shows up to the start line at hundred percent Yeah. ever. Yeah. It's just not possible. Right. There's just too much out, outside of your control that you can't optimize for. And so when you finally just sit back and accept that 
and then you shift your focus on what can I learn, then it becomes a no lose situation. Yeah, it's interesting. The other side of that becomes how to, and you did mention this on the PE side and, and uh, introducing coaches to understanding that, uh, and not to coddle people, but everybody does need to be managed differently. I had a yeah. a director of UX, David Demmer, who I think listens to the show, love the guy. I had to learn how to work with him because everything I said would stress him out. And then he would come mm-hmm. to me and, you know, and like close my door and, you know, talk to me about, man, you know, like I feel really marginalized by this thing you said or this thing you did or whatever it was, you know, and I, and, and my initial instinct was like, dude, rub some dirt on it. Just what, quit <laughs> bitching, you know? And, and it was like, and, but you know, I would always deal with the situation. And then we did the, um, Myers-Briggs tests. And so I started oh, yeah. learning more about that. And I, I think it was Myers-Briggs it was one of the similar ones. And I started learning about it. And then I realized where he was coming from. You know, I understood yeah. that kind of like what we talked about yesterday, like you have to hire for your weaknesses. And so, which is something that I learned early and have always believed in, but then sometimes I forget that other people have different weaknesses than I do. And so you have mm-hmm. to learn how, whether it's a, whether it's one of your athletes or a teammate or, you know, something like that, you have to learn what drives those people, how your words affect those people, how your policies and your management style. And once I, sh- once I realized that, because the term servant leadership gets thrown out there a lot, but I don't think mm-hmm. most people really relate to what it means. They think it's like just yeah. being nice or just serving, but it really, that, that lesson taught me how to manage him. Like our, our, he, I don't, he, I've never told him this. And so if he's listening, this is the first time he would have known this, but it changed 100% my relationship to him and the value that oh. I saw in him, you know? And what an incredible, an incredible gift for him to be willing to come to you. Yeah in that honesty and rawness and say, this is how this landed with me. And what an incredible opportunity that opened up for you to learn and, and change how you were viewing things. That's amazing. Yeah. And I've never been like a drill instructor, hard ass manager in that regard, but it was like, you know, I would, frankly, I probably would have, you know, smiled and nodded and said, it's going to be okay. And then he would have left. And then I would have just been like, not seething, but just in my mind going, what the hell? Like, dear Lord, you know? (laughs) But then again, it was, um, you know, and you learn part of this as a parent, but you deal with your children much differently than you deal with, you know, like I, my wife always points this out to me, like you would never talk to your team (laughs) the way you talk to your kids or vice versa, you know, (laughs) like you show so much patience with your team and you know, why not at home, that type of thing. So not that I'm a tyrant at home, but you know, you, you just, you know, you have when, when you are, um, when you're in a situation where you are constantly trying to get the best out of people while you are trying to hit deadlines. So again, let's analogize Mm -hmm. this back to a race where you have trees whizzing by you at 40 miles per hour, and you are trying to get the best out of your teammates. You're trying to motivate that person you're trying to get on the podium and you know, they're crashing and you know, you're thinking to yourself, not only tactically in a race, what can I do to help that person? But what can I say to them? You know, am I shoving a power bar in their face saying, you know, (laughs) 
It's like that Snickers commercial with Betty White in the back seat, you know. Yeah. It's like <laughs> he says. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's all interesting, you know. The there there's so many parallels. And I think the more we understand about ourselves and and how to how to to manage other people, you realize the product you're developing or the race you're racing is such a means to an end. Like they're just they're just oh, yeah. canvases for the important things in life. Yeah, I think what you just said really nails it is you have to figure out what it is that each person needs. And earlier in our conversation you mentioned that you you end up in situations often and, and especially at the high level of sport, but definitely in in business too, you end up in a situation where you have really high performers who are as individual superstars working together on the same team. And then how do you get those people to engage in that evolution we talked about where they're evolving towards elevating each other versus seeing each other's success as threats? And that's really hard to do when you're working with high performers. And I think part of being a servant leader in that situation is digging deep and understanding what each of the, what is it that really drives each of those people and helping give them what they need to be successful as individuals and once you do that, if you empower each person with the resources and support that they need to be successful in what they're good at and, and lean into their superpowers, then, and you appreciate and value every time they reach out and help do the same for their teammates, you create this amazing positive feedback loop that just, it, it becomes instead of a vicious cycle, a virtuous cycle, yeah. right? You want to create that virtuous cycle and keep that momentum going. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I mean, you could almost apply the same thing to customers and, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, ultimately when you build products, you are trying to empower your customers to do something that they otherwise yes. can't do or do better um, than, you know, than they were doing it before. When, when you think about your transition from cycling, do you think Do you think you've always been, so I think, you know, the product developers, developers of any kind, whether you're an architect or, you know, a painter or something, somebody who can sort of create out of whole cloth is a very, you can learn the mechanics of it. Anybody could theoretically do it, but obviously the people who do it well, um, and just even based on this conversation, I can tell that you do it well. Um, <laughs> But do you think that that was always in you? Do you think that cycling shaped some of that, your, your, um, your journey as a domestique? Do you think that that helped you? Or it obviously helped you. Did you think that you've always been that person, like where you're showing up today as a product developer, would that have been there, do you think, without what you learned as a cyclist and specifically as a domestique? Well, the short answer is definitely not, but what I would hope is if I weren't a cyclist and I were on a different path that I would have found, I, I hope that I would have learned these same, same lessons and been able to apply them as well. And I think, you know, part of having a growth mindset is recognizing that, you know, I'm, I'm not the same person I was yeah. 10 years ago. And thank goodness for that. You know, <laughs> no, not that I was a terrible person 10 yeah. years ago, but oh my gosh, how much sure. have I learned in 10 years and, yeah. and what a wonderful thing that is. And and how nice it is once in a while to take a just reflect on how far you've come because it's yeah. so easy for us to get, you know, locked into what's the next goal, the next goal, the next yeah. goal. You're always looking to the future. And then, you know, every once in a while, it's good to give yourself yeah. credit for where you've come from. 
Well, um, and you and you graduated I, from Stanford, yeah. which frankly has produced yeah. like some of the best product thinkers on you know in history. <laughs> and so it's, but you didn't study anything close to product. I don't remember what it was that no. you studied there, but I remember reading about it, and I thought, what in the hell is that? What did you <laughs> What did you study at Stanford? So, so short answer. Um, my undergraduate degree, my BA is in human biology, okay. and my master's of science is in earth systems with a focus in oceanography. Okay. Earth and systems. That was the one that sort of tripped me up. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that none of this has anything to do with product, but I will tell you, there are a lot of really direct mm. learnings from both, which was, which now reflecting back on it, it's so easy to see those connections. I never in a million years when I was doing, it would have thought that this is where it would lead me. Um, but as well, a couple of examples, um, the Earth Systems Program at Stanford is an interdisciplinary environmental problem-solving program. Okay. So what they do is they say, okay, you care about the environment? That's great. You can't just run around with signs yelling, save the whales. If you want to have impact and make a difference, you need to understand the whaling economy. So you need to understand economics and be able to talk Got to it. economists. You need to understand the biology and, and um, ecology of whales and, and where they live in the oceans. You have to understand how that interacts with climate. You have to understand how cultures and, and social mores tie in with this. Because, you know, if you want to impact policy that affects whaling, you have to understand, you know, the son who's whaling because his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather were whaling. You have to bring all of these things to the table and be able to have conversations each person in every one of those areas of expertise. And I feel like that's such a perfect analogy for yeah. product management because ultimately, and I'll tell you a quick story. So we, um, part of my graduate research, we were doing, we were tagging um, pelagic animals, which is to say we were putting archival tags into animals that swim in the open ocean. We were, we were tagging tuna and we were out on, in order to do this, we went out on a commercial fishing vessel. And so here we are, a bunch of scientists, conservationists on a boat with these commercial fishermen. So there's immediate tension because the commercial fishermen look at us like, oh, these conservationists just want right. us to stop fishing. Yep. Right. And then we're like, well, we, you know, yeah, we want to save the fish. And so there's this tension, but after a while and after telling enough jokes and kind of like building some personal rapport, you get to the point where you realize, actually, we, we both just want more fish. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a common interest. Yeah. And maybe the, the reasons are different and our, our proposed solutions are different, but there's a common interest. And so once you land on the common interest, suddenly that opens the door to all of these incredibly mm. constructive conversations that you can have. But you have to have the patience to build a relationship and to be able to speak the same language to engage in that conversation. And that was a really powerful moment for me because it made me understand that, you know, going back to your, your point about the Myers-Briggs and the different styles of communication, being able to understand where somebody else is coming from, not only from, um, you know, their perspective and their own expertise, but yeah. their style of communication, their style of learning and understanding as an individual person. In order to communicate effectively, you have to understand that the way that I think about something and explain it isn't necessarily going to be the way that somebody else is going to understand it most easily. I might have to say the same thing 10 different ways in yeah. order for it to land with somebody. And learning those things and understanding how to communicate that effectively is so important. And so when you look at product management, I mean, in a, it, with product management, it's very much the same thing where you're, you're trying to communicate ideas and problems 
to an engineer, to a designer, to a UX researcher, to an executive. And each one of those people has a different framing on what's going to happen, what needs to happen. You know, they have a different expertise and you have to be able to speak their language and also teach and learn at the same time in a way that's going to land with that individual. And it's, it's a, again, I, I love those really complex and layered dynamics. I think, um, I mean, if I wanted to boil all of this down, you know, another thing that I, I really enjoyed in, in the human biology component of my education was, so I was a swimmer at Stanford. So for the first two years I was swimming there, like we were training like 40 hours a week. And, yeah. and I, I got into human biology because I, I was an athlete and I was fascinated by physiology and performance. Yeah. And I really wanted to get in on that. But then I ended up not being able to finish um, out my NC2A eligibility for it's a whole different story. But what that did was it opened up all this time in my schedule for me to study elsewhere. And I hadn't been able mm. to study abroad. So I went down to Monterey and I studied at the um, Hopkins Marine Station down there, which is how I got into the oceanography and everything. But that introduced me to policy, environmental policy. And that was a really interesting thing too, because looking at policy and evaluating policy, it's not just about, okay, here's this thing and here's how we're going to do it. You have to think about what are the benefits to this policy yeah. and how are those distributed? Who's winning? Who's winning more? Who's winning less? And then right. what are the costs associated with that policy? And how are those costs distributed? Who's bearing the cost more than somebody else? And then looking at all of those, oh, sorry, looking at all of those things and, and making a holistic kind of systems approach evaluation yeah. on what that solution is. And can you find that is going to, you know, maximally distribute benefits and maximally minimize costs. All of those things really boil down to kind of behavioral psychology, right? Yeah. So you might have the perfect policy that has the perfect distribution of costs and benefit, but are people actually going to do it? Right. Right. That's the other key is, is it feasible? Is it something that you can entice and, and, and uh, incentivize people into doing? And so all of that really plays very much into product because you're looking at you're not out to manipulate people with a product, but let's say, let's take a, a training app, for example, with Trainer Road. Like, I know from a fundamental evidence based perspective the things that are going to work for helping somebody get fitter and the things that aren't, right? Like, I know that you need yeah. more, you need to balance your training stress and your, your rest. Like, there are some things that are just very concrete. Yeah. So, how can we build a product that's going to incentivize people to do the things that are going to benefit them the most? And how can we? minimize the cost how can we minimize the friction and again like we might come up with the greatest solution but is it the solution that somebody's actually going to do and yeah. so we're looking at psychology of the consumer but then you're also dealing with the behavioral psychology of your team and the engineering department and the executives yeah. and then each of those people is an individual and how do you put all of that together and communicate in a way that's going to be really effective is like just this endless yeah fascinating well, challenge <laughs> and, and you just said you know when you were talking about the product itself where you're trying to maximize benefit let's say and reduce friction mm -hmm. where we know now that sometimes those two things are very much at odds with what is best for the end consumer meaning that yes sure tiktok reduced a lot of friction because now you have this ephemeral scroll of garbage and <sighs> You know, so they have made an amazing product, extremely engaging product on the level of heroin, you know, and I'm not, I'm not being yeah. hyperbolic. I mean, literally I watch my kids 
you know, like you have to literally slap the phone out of their hand. Sometimes <laughs> they are so like, and, I, and I've done it too on, you know, like Instagram reels. It's like, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? I've been sitting here for 20 yeah. minutes just. And so that's where, yeah, you've created this amazing product that, and, I, and it's all not, it's not all negative. The creativity from people who are otherwise would not be creative. The things that you see oh, on yeah. like Instagram reels are really remarkable, but the lack of friction then we find out, which I think, you know, you had to be blind if you, if you didn't realize this up front, but is, could be extremely damaging psychologically. You know, you want to mm -hmm. introduce some level of friction there for, especially these kids who, you know, they don't have the perspective that an adult has and what's important, what's not important you know, who's filtered, who's not filtered, who's living this authentic life versus my favorite, like social meme videos or whatever, or the guy who keeps showing up with the green screen in, in zoom meetings. Have you seen these? And he's <laughs> no. like, Oh my God, it's hilarious. He's <laughs> like, they started out pretty benign. Like he was sitting on his boat, I think. And, but he green screened like a bookshelf behind him. And so he, it's split screen <laughs> and he's showing himself like on his boat, but then he's like in a bathing suit and a suit jacket, you know, and he's like <laughs> oh talking to the people. And then it has evolved where like, he's at like a, I don't know, like a Yankees game or something. And so he's got like <laughs> everybody around him sort of being quiet and he's like, you know, like he'll talk. I, it, it has to be completely staged at this point, but they're hilarious, you know. Um, that's too much. But yeah, so that's that's the other side of product development is understanding and, you know, like there's a whole other value system that plays into it. Mm -hmm. And are you, are you making the world a better place while you right. are building these products? You know, for me, right. like with Athlinks, it was always about, um, you know, more pace, more people racing, more often having more fun in the process. And so that was the North star. That's what everything, everything that we built was always with that in mind. Are we making more people race more often and having more fun in the process? Right. Um, yeah. and so that's the other side of the challenge of development is, is, you know, it, you know, just because you can, doesn't mean you should to, to quote another, uh, you know, a famous exactly. quote there from Jurassic Park, but, um, yeah. How do you, cause I know, you know, you have, you have since left trainer road. Um, but you know, you're still very much in this space of, you know, kind of, um, like what is your North star when you think about what's next for you in terms of what you want? How, how do you build the things that make the world a better place and make life better for users? Yeah, I, so one of the things I really liked about being in the fitness space is that feels like, you know, it, there's such an obvious good to be achieved there, right? Is helping people feel good and confident in their bodies as they are and move. And I mean, we know from being involved in this sport, how incredibly empowering it can be, you know, just to get out and do something that you may not ever, you know, have believed that you could do on the bike creates this whole cascading of a effect of where you start to question what are the other things in my life that I didn't think I could do that maybe I actually can. Yeah. And that is such a powerful discovery and such a powerful journey and it and you know having been on that myself and and you understand this too and folks listening probably you know regardless of whether it's cycling it could be anything else you have this drive to want to share that with people and to help other people have that same incredibly fulfilling experience. And you know, fitness is, is on the, on the face of it, you know, 
a very obvious, like, oh, this is just a good thing. Right. But, you know, to your point, there's always a dark side to it too. And it's, you know, okay, we want to incentivize people to engage in health, health promoting behaviors. Well, it's not always, you know, a lot of people who come to an endurance training app maybe are coming to an endurance training app with body dysmorphia. Mm. Right. And are you, are you unintentionally making that worse for them? And so there's, there's always going to be a hidden cost and it's so important to step back and, and not be blind to, you know, not, not to be deluded into thinking that like, Oh, what I'm building can only possibly be used for good, could only possibly have right. a good outcome, but to, to take a really critical eye to it and to, to think through how that might affect people. So that, that's one thought, but then also getting to your question of like, what is it that you know, really resonates with me and what am I looking for here? It's really that. I think to help meet people where they are and help them see that where you are today is a it's not a bad place to be yeah. and b where you are today can always be a starting point for new learning new growth i think one of the things that um i had a hard time learning and understanding and i see this in other athletes and i see this in people in business too is this idea that um you have to in order to be driven in order to be ambitious, in order to push yourself to do the next better thing, you have to be really dissatisfied with how and who you are right now. Mm. And that's just not true. Yeah. You can be so proud of who you've become and what you've accomplished and who you are today and still feel motivated to want to learn and grow and get better. And I think that, you know, for a lot of us at some point at a tender young age, we had somebody in a position of authority try to quote unquote motivate us with what amounts to kind of abusive language, right? <laughs> you know, by putting you down and making you feel terrible about yourself. And that becomes imprinted. Then then you start to believe that, oh, this, this is how I motivate myself to do yeah. better is to think that I'm terrible as I am and I have to do this thing in order to start to feel good about myself. No. You can start by feeling good about yourself. Yeah. And you can and it's not going to take away your motivation to become better or learn something new. And I think that's a hard thing to let go of because I think a lot of people think, well, if I don't, if I start to have positive self-talk and I start to be kinder to myself, aren't I just letting myself off the hook? And am Mm. I just not going to like become complacent and no way. Are you kidding? We're human beings wired to learn and grow. We are wired with this. And so I think one of the things that that's really the thing that drives me is to to help people see that they can, they can look at themselves differently. They can trust themselves. They can believe in themselves and they don't have to be so harsh and hard on themselves in order to learn and grow and improve yeah. in life. And I think um, I've, I've really tried to do that with my work at, at Trainer Road and that was a, a great vehicle for that. And I, it's something that I want to absolutely continue to do yeah. in the future. That's awesome. Well, we should, we should do some stuff together. <laughs> should that would be fun there you go yeah you know it's interesting like you can you can learn a lot about people and management from building sandcastles and Mm. when the sand is too dry it just won't you can't build it up if it's too wet can't build it up you have to figure out how to get the sand just that perfect amount of wet where you can layer it up and build it you know 
and and people are very much you know whether it's yourself or you're dealing with somebody else is you have to understand when the sand is too dry when the sand is too wet and and get it that right place where you can build on the next thing and actually build height you know so true i yeah. love that Cool. I love that. Um, let's do uh, a few questions here, just real quick. Some okay. lightning round stuff. Let uh, let people get to know the, the real Amber here. So, um, <laughs> question number one: Living or dead? Who would you most like to share a long ride or run with? Oh man! Oh, this is gonna be terrible. I'm not gonna be a good lightning round person because I right. overthink it all. Um, gosh, I. What was the first name that just popped in your head you, without even thinking? Daniel Kahneman. Who's that? Behavioral economist. Oh, He's wow. a behavioral economist. God, yeah. You're, a nerd. you're <laughs> a Stanford nerd. Good answer Absolutely. though. Hey, that's great. Uh, what was your best moment on a bike? Oh gosh, there are too many to choose yeah. from, but honestly, um, the distinguishing factor really is pretty rarely was it standing on the podium. It was mm. more of those moments in the race where you know that you, you just had a profound impact on somebody's day or potentially even on their life. And and that's, I, I have a small collection of those, those moments that I carry with me and every single one is a gift. That is wonderful. Love that answer. Uh, do you have like a favorite <laughs> book or movie for inspiration? Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is an incredible book. Um, okay. It just is a massive dose of perspective and the the message is is a beautiful one which is you know with with great responsibility comes uh, with great power comes responsibility yeah. and ultimately um your one freedom that no one can ever take from you is how you respond to any circumstance that life throws at you love it mike malisi who is now the president of chrono track always makes fun of me because in a conference talk I said of athletes with great data comes great responsibility and it's our purpose to blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. And he still makes fun of me for how stupid and cheesy that was of me to say, but I still stand by <laughs> it's it. It's true. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's your finish line song for um, your playlist? Like what's that one that just gets you across the finish line? Oh man. You uh, talk about nerd. Okay. So my, I used to have a pump up track or playlist and it was everything. I'm not kidding. And you Vivaldi was on there, mm. but so was Led Zeppelin and White Zombie yeah. and Tom Petty. And so I, I have pretty eclectic music taste. And it, it, yeah, so a lot of ver a lot of variety there. So I don't That's think good. I could pick just one, but I, I do love music. I'm kind of similar. I have a, I have a playlist called Bones that it's all just Slipknot and just, you know, ginger, like really hardcore metal stuff. And uh, Miley Cyrus can't stop is on there. And it's just one of those I songs. <laughs> yeah. When I'm doing intervals, especially it's the perfect length for a half mile interval. And there's something about that chorus that just like gets my legs moving. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, go yeah. figure. What's your um, favorite or a favorite race you've done or a bucket list race you, you didn't get to do that you would love to do. Oh man. Um, I have to go with a favorite was, so I grew up in Reno, Nevada, mm. and there's a, a long standing race there called the Tour de Ney, which um, was put on by a, a local coffee shop. And that was a personal favorite and a, uh, I actually won it. Cool. And that was a really special win that just went in front of my hometown crowd. Boom, love it. Uh, I don't even like this question. I don't know why I added it in here, but uh, I'm gonna put it in there. Who do you admire most and why? It's kind of a cheesy question, but um, oh, that is let's super go with cheesy. it. It is. <laughs> um, I can't pick just one person. I, yeah. I've, I'll just say that I've worked with a lot of people, and I think that a common thread among people that I really admire is they're just 
incredibly kind, mm. incredibly kind people. And it's it's always remarkable to me to, to be able to work with people who are world-class and elite at what they do and to yeah. see what giving and generous people they are at heart as well. That's awesome. I'll rewrite the question then on the fly and say, what character trait in people do you admire most? There you go. And yeah. you just answered the kind question. Of, That's a better yeah, question. I was... Yeah, I, I always I always play with these questions. Sometimes they land, sometimes they don't. And I just, as I read that one aloud, I'm like, was I drunk when I wrote that? That's stupid. <laughs> that is lazy. That is a lazy question to have asked. And I apologize for that. That's all right. We, yeah. we made lemonade out of lemons. Well, excellent. Well, it's been amazing talking to you. I can't wait to have more chats with you and, and let's go build oh, some likewise. great stuff together. Where can people find you uh, on the on the socials? On the socials. So I'm on Instagram. My handle is at Amber Malika, A-M-B-E-R-M-A-L-I-K-A. That's my middle name Got for it. anybody wondering. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, just look me up, Amber Pierce. And then uh, my website is ambermalikapierce.com, A-M-B-E-R-M-A-L-I-K-A-P-I-E-R-C-E. I before E, except after C. Mm -hmm. Good rules yeah. to live by. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is this has been great. Thank you, Troy. Yeah, I'm super glad we made oh, time to do this. Oh, this is an this. absolute joy. Cool. I really awesome. appreciate your time. Excellent. Bye-bye.